0: Okay, so we'd like to welcome you to part two of our current event and weekly Bible study for April 6, 2008. And we're going to continue with the last part. And uh, Doug, Doug had brought up a good point too, and, and this was in, in here. I, I edited a lot out. There's there, This original study was about 47, 8 pages. And a lot of it I edited out. A lot of it was uh, repetitive and rhetorical. But they did em- heavily emphasize also a tenet of the Golden Dawn being uh, a very, very important tenet was the Kabbalah. The study of the Kabbalah. And this is something that you see very much prevalent in a lot of the occult literature, times past and today, the importance of the Kabbalah, which is basically the highest form of, of witchcraft. Jewish, I guess you'd call it Jewish witchcraft. This type of thing. Um, so if we go further, this is another a quote from this literature regarding this Charles Williams, who was an inkling, who was best friends with C.S. Lewis. And this goes on to say, and it was maybe also from Waite's writings that Williams acquired some of his his knowledge of black magic. Whatever the sources, by the late 1920s, Williams was thoroughly acquainted acquainted with the terminology and the practices of black magic. To him, it was as valid as a form of symbolism as any symbol in Christianity. End of quote. Another quote reads, So so though he, Williams, soon outgrew the Golden Dawn, and left the order, uh, the date is not known, the symbolism and the knowledge of the occult that he had acquired during its membership remained with him, though. Okay, so, this Charles Williams, the best friend of C.S. Lewis, this very dark occult man, he left the Golden Dawn. Much like Aleister Crowley left the Golden Dawn because there was a, an internal power struggle between Aleister Crowley and, and the, uh, the, one of the original founders, Mathers. And um, I believe one of the reasons Crowley left is because that they weren't taking, they weren't, they weren't hardcore enough for him. He wanted to get into the really overt practicing of the black magic, whereas the Order of the Golden Dawn didn't want to take it as far as Crowley wanted to take it. I don't know if William left for same, the same reasons or not, but he did leave. Um, but he would acquired much of the, uh, this occult knowledge while he was there. And then it says, not least because in its extreme form of black, black magic was the popular opposite of Christianity. So in other words, when it, within the Golden Dawn was an extreme form of black magic that was in polar opposition with Christianity. This is a, another quote from a resource entitled From Charles Williams, The Last Magician um, by Greville Lindrop. Now again, remember, the Bible says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses a thing is established. This is well known that this guy was heavily involved in the occult. And that his close relationship with both C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Williams Charles Williams, who was a devout Anglican, just like C.S. Lewis, as well as a former member of the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, and a specialist in the Tarot and the Kabbalah. So he was also a member of the Rosy Cross, another occult organization. He specialized in Tarot cards and the Kabbalah, which we just mentioned. Okay, Was a close friend of Tolkien during the years of the Second World War, and even a closer friend, almost indeed... To, to his spiritual advisor, C.S. Lewis. He is, quote, the last magician, both as the last of the ma- magically creative inklings to receive due attention. They called him the, the last magician. Hmm. And as well as the last major writer to emerge from the inklings, as Yeats did before him, from the, uh, from the Western occult tradition. Okay, so Yeats, who was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, um, Charles Williams, most likely C.S. Lewis, and also Tolkien, and essentially they all wrote in a very, very similar fashion from the Western occult tradition. They drew upon their vast knowledge of the occult, and they, and they put it into this supernatural uh, fantasy occult literature, which has... An incredible, which had an appeal back then, but has much more of an incredible appeal now, as we're being more and more indoctrinated into witchcraft. He was also the greatest 20th century poet to take the Arthurian legends, the Arthur, you know, Camelot things. He took the Arthurian legends for his theme. C.S. Lewis wrote of his poems. He said in one spot, They seem to me, for their profound wisdom, to be among the two or three most valuable books of verse produced in the century. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis about Charles Williams. They seem to me, for their profound wisdom, what, their profound occult wisdom, demonic wisdom, for their profound wisdom to be among the two or three most valuable books of verse produced in the century. What about the Bible, C.S. Lewis? I thought that you were a Christian apologist, yet you're praising this man who was demonically possessed? Well, hey, birds of a feather flock together. What absolute blasphemy from a supposedly highly regarded Christian apologist. Williams was an occultist. Trained in A. E. Waite's Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, an organization descended from the Yeats Order of the Golden Dawn. A lifelong Christian a, a, a lifelong supposed Christian. Give me a break. He challenged the the church's traditional uh, views with a philo- theology of romantic love and urging a positive reassessment of sexuality. So you remember he has this erotic conception of love where, where he tries to compare that to the love of God. I don't even know what he's going with there and I don't even really want to know. Alongside his marriage, he maintained... An agonizingly unconsummated 18-year-old love affair with Phyllis Jones. This is this Charles Williams guy. And acquired a host of disciples. Well, hey, C.S. Lewis did the same thing. They all had their mistresses. You know, really, another, is this like an earmark of a Christian or a devil? An agonizingly unconsummated 18-year-old love affair with Phyllis Jones and the guy was married? And he acquired a host of disciples, young women in particular, who depended on him for spiritual advice. Talk about going to the devil to get spiritual advice. He continued, sometimes with their cooperation, to practice magical rituals which he believed were essential to sustain his creativity. Now this sounds much like his buddy, Aleister Crowley, who would go around and brag about all these magical sexual uh, rites that he would do with both men, women, and children in order to maintain his power. Okay, they believe that you have to perform the ceremonial magic, which was a big part of the Order of the Golden Dawn, in order to maintain your occult power, in order to increase it. Okay, and who was inspiring him to do this? It was not the Lord Jesus Christ. So who knows what went on? It's not even appropriate to even talk about it but I think you can kind of do the math in your head and realize there was some really wicked, evil stuff going on here. Um, Another quote says, A brilliant Anglican theologian and an interpreter of Christian doctrine, this is this Charles Williams, he was a trained occultist who even continued to practice what can only be called magical rituals with a sexual or even sadistic tinge to them. But yet this person says that he was a brilliant Anglican theologian and an interpreter of Christian doctrine, and at the same time he, he performed magical rituals with a sexual sadistic tinge to them, doesn't quite add up. Uh, remember, a fountain cannot yield both fresh and salt water. And we've got a lot of that going on here, supposedly. It's all bad. Okay. Here's another quote, some more quotes from a... Article called A Trouble in Narnia, The Occult Side of C.S. Lewis by Marianne Collins. This is from February 2006. Okay, so quoting from this article, uh, this Marianne Collins says, I've been uneasy about the enthusiasm for Narnia. Then one morning I woke up vividly remembering some things about the third Narnia book. And now I recognize the root of what has been troubling me. I had read all the C.S. Lewis books, including his essays, his collections of letters, his science fiction, and the Narnia books. I read most of the books more than once. Now, I can't, this is something I can't say I have any personal experience on. Yes, we've we've quoted a lot from his own writings, his own autobiography, other people talking about him, but these are people that have actually read the books, been there, done it, type of thing. Um, I also read all the books of Charles Williams. Well, why wouldn't you? Because if C.S. Lewis regarded Charles Williams as, as, you know, like this unbelievable writer and his works were the most important works of the last 20th century among them, which is what he flat out said, it was his most dearest friend, well, hey, if you have a lot of respect for C.S. Lewis, you you would want to be drawn into what Charles Williams would write about too, right? She also read all his books because he was a close friend of C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis spoke so highly of him. And I read all of George MacDonald's books because Lewis admired him and spoke well of his books as well. And I don't even know about that guy. but um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the third book of the Narnia series. It directly promotes spells and magic. Chapter 10, uh, which is entitled The Magician's Book, features a book of spells that is on an island inhabited by invisible creatures called Dufflepuds. Lucy works a spell to make the duffelpuds visible. She goes through a spell book, and it is beautiful and fascinating. Then she finds the right spell and says the words and follows the instructions, and then the duffelpuds in Aslan become visible. Aslan, remember, is the type of Christ figure, the lion type of Christ figure. Her spell made Aslan visible. And he, ple- and he is pleased with what she did. So in other words, this false Christ, Aslan, is, is pleased with her witchcraft well this is right out of this is right out of c.s lewis's book the 10th chapter of the voyages of the dawn treader of the narnia series which is what's so popular in the theaters right now and has been many christians are treating the narnia books As an allegory. The Aslan representing Jesus. The children representing Christians. If you do this with the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, then you portray Jesus as being pleased when Christians do magic and work spells. You see where all this is leading? It's the whole point of it. This is why Satan has put so much trouble into this. This is effort that Satan has put forth through his pawns. Like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and Charles Williams. And you support the idea that there are good spells and good magic. The belief is the basis for modern white witchcraft. However, the Bible clearly forbids any such form of witchcraft. Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 12 says, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, child sacrifice, or that useth divination, fortune telling of any way, shape, or form, or an observer of times, astrology, or an enchanter, one that works spells, or a witch practicing witchcraft or consulting with a witch. Or a charmer would be a witch using charms or other objects for the protection or good luck. Or a consulter with familiar spirits, which is basically channeling demons. Or a wizard, which is just another form of, uh, of witch. Or a necromancer, which is basically trying to contact the dead. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. Deuteronomy 18, 10-12. T- okay, so... Not something you want to be participating in as a born-again Christian. Exposing it's one thing. Participating in it is a totally different thing. And when you read these books, and you embrace them, and you get into this fantasy make-believe world, you're, subject to, you're, you're subjecting yourselves to the very spirits that governed the person that wrote the fantasy occult literature. And I guarantee you something else. When you buy one of these books like um, the Narnia Chronicles of the Lord of the Rings, you're probably bringing in a big fat demon into your house. It's like a cursed object. Okay? Because the spirits that wrote that book are going to be attached to these writings. Okay? So don't... That's another thing that we haven't really even touched upon. But that is also very, very valid. In his autobiography which was entitled Surprised by Joy C.S. Lewis tells how at the age of 13 he abandoned his Anglican faith due to the influence of his school mistress, who was involved with theosophy Rosic- Rosicrucianism, spiritualism the whole Anglican, Anglo-American occultist tradition and Lewis developed a quote lust for the occult that remained with him even after he returned to Anglicanism did you know that? In another quote he said, this is from his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, pages 58 through 60. He says, quote, In that started in me something with which, on and off, I have had plenty of trouble with since. The desire for the preternatural, preternatural, such as the passion for the occult. Not everyone has this disease. Those who who have those who have will know what I mean. In other words, those who have this disease, this passion for the occult. This is C.S. Lewis from his own autobiography. I once tried to describe it in a novel. It is a spiritual lust. And like the lust of a body, it has the fatal power of making everything else in the world seem uninteresting un- while it lasts. End of quote. I, I mean, I'm speechless after reading that quote. And that's just one of the many. The lust for the occult? That has the power of making everything else in the world seem uninteresting while this lust for the occult lasts? That's why that's why Satan wants to get you in it. Because, hey, these fantasy books and these fantasy movies and all this other stuff, it's more interesting than the Bible. It talks about sin and, and hell and all these other things. It talks about maybe an accountable God. It talks about there being only one way. Well, this is way more interesting That's exactly what Satan wants. Lewis said that he described that that lust for the occult in a novel. It occurs... And we're going to talk about that. It occurs in the third book of his science fiction trilogy. A man is in the process of being initiated into an inner ring of scientists who are occultists. They worship demons which they call macrobes, which are huge, powerful, invisible beings as opposed to microbes which are tiny, invisible things. Here, he surely at last... Okay, this is a quote from this book. Here, he, no, here, here, surely at last, so his desire whispered to him, was the true inner circle of all. The circle whose center was outside the human race. The ultimate secret, the supreme power, the last initiation, the fact that it was almost completely horrible did not in the least diminish its attraction. End of quote. Now, let's just go through that again, because these these poet guys write in such a way where sometimes you read it the first time and you don't really think anything of it. Okay? So, from this quote, from this book, this third book, um, which is called That Hideous Strength, A Modern Fairy Tale for Grown-Ups. Pages 259 and 260 by C.S. Lewis. He said, Surely at last was the true inner circle of all The circle whose center was outside the human race. What does that imply? That implies some powerful, uh, uh, demonic entity that was outside the human race. They weren't human. The ultimate secret. The supreme power. The last initiation. The fact that it was almost completely horrible did not in the least diminish its attraction. Meaning that even though these these demonic entities or these fallen angelic entities were so horrible it still did not diminish his attraction to them because it was a very powerful attraction. Then he goes on to say in that hideous strength, page 269, these creatures or demons breathe death on the human race and on all joy. Not despite this but because of this the terrible gravitation sucked and tugged the fascinating the fascinated, toward them. Never before had he known the fruitful strength of the movement opposite of nature, which now had him in its grip, the impulse to reverse all reluctances and to draw every circle anti-clockwise. And again, he's saying the same thing here, he's just saying it in a different way. This, this, these demons exerted this terrible gravitation that sucked and tugged those fascinated by them toward them. This is what happens with the occult. These demonic entities, these evil entities, will suck and tug you toward them. Even though they're terrible, you become fascinated with them, and you want to go and participate in this stuff. And then it said, now it had them in its grip, and the impulse to reverse all the reluctances, and to draw every circle anti-counterclockwise. In other words, you get to a point where you're in so deep, that even if you want to get out, you can't, because they have you in in their grip why you don't ever get there you don't you don't dabble with this kind of stuff because it's very dangerous note that lewis said that he had trouble with that lust for the occult ever since his encounter with the matron in his boys school he wrote that he wrote that statement in 1955 by then he had written all but 3 of his books so in other words he never broke free from this fascination with the occult ever never happened and that's obviously reflected in all of his writings Lewis said that he strong, was strongly influenced by George MacDonald, who was a universalist. MacDonald's book, entitled Lilith, is based on the occult teaching that Abraham was married to a demon named Lilith married before he married Eve. By the end of MacDonald's book, Lilith is redeemed, and Adam says that even the devil will eventually be redeemed. What a mouthful there that I just said. In that little gem of a paragraph. Let's go over this again. Lewis said that he was strongly influenced also by George MacDonald. Who was a universalist, Unitarian Universalist. Everybody's going to heaven. Well, what does Aslan teach in C.S. Lewis's book? It said that, that even though you serve Tash to that one guy... Tash was the devil, I will account everything that you've done to Tash, who is the devil, I will account that worship toward me, and account it to, on your credit. So in other words, even if we live like the devil, or if we live good, we're, it's all good, we're all going to heaven. It's a life in the pit of hell. Well, no wonder he wrote the way he did. This George MacDonald guy was also one of his, his guys that influenced him. George McDonald wrote a book called Lilith. Lilith is the goddess or the devil of child sacrifice. Among other things, the goddess of the night, the goddess of one of the goddesses of death, sexual lust and debauchery, Lilith. He wrote a book named Lilith. And it's based on the occult teaching that Adam was married to a demon named Lilith before he married Eve. Now I believe that this is part of the whole serpent seed heresy that's now very, very prevalent in Christianity. Which says that basically Eve um, uh, Oh, actually, no. That's different. This is one. This is one saying Adam married was was married to Lilith. Okay. There's another theory with the serpent seed where Eve actually had sexual relations with Satan, and produced what they call the serpent seed line. Okay. And I can totally disprove that just by using the Bible. But this is another theory that. Adam was married to a demon named Lilith. See, if they can corrupt the Garden of Eden account, if they can get you to doubt what happened in the Garden of Eden, you can just go ahead and logically throw out the rest of your Bible. Because if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Oh, and this Lilith thing that I just talked about, where where Eve, uh, Adam, was married to a demon named Lilith, this is directly from the Kabbalah, which is probably the, the most strongest undercurrent about everything that I'm talking about today here, which is the highest form of Jewish mysticism and witchcraft, the Kabbalah. So by the end of MacDonald's book, Lilith is redeemed, and Adam says that even the devil will eventually be redeemed, just like all universalists would say. The universalism shows up in many of Lewis's fiction works. In the last book of Narnia, and we talked about that last week, about the, the universalist quotes that he said. In the last book of Narnia, which is called The Last Battle, last of the Narnia books, The Last Battle, a pagan makes it to heaven because of his good works and his good motives, in spite of the fact that he did not believe in Aslan, who was their false Christ, who was, you know, represented as Christ. And he worshipped Aslan's enemy, the false god of Tosh. I just kind of mentioned that earlier. Lilith also shows up in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Bieber tells the children that the White Witch is descended from Lilith, who is the first wife of Adam. I'm talking some really serious, blasphemous stuff here. And yet you've got Christians that are loading, pastors and churches that are loading up buses full of Christians and taking them to these movies? Man. To whom much is given, much is required. I don't want any more dear. Lewis also had a close friend named Owen Barfield. He dedicated the Narnia books to him. Okay, now... This guy was so close to C.S. Lewis that he dedicated the Narnia books to him. His name was Owen Barfield. And he named Lucy after Barfield's daughter. Lucy was one of the main characters in the Chronicles of Narnia. This is how much he liked this guy. Who was Barfield? Barfield was a philosopher who started out with Theosophy and developed it into his own version. Theosophy, you mean Adam H.P. Blavatsky? The Theosophical Society? Yep, same one, where they basically worship Lucifer. Yep, same one. Highly influenced Adolf Hitler and Aleister Crowley. And they're all, you know. yeah, same one. According to Theosophy, the God of the Bible is a tyrant. And Lucifer, the devil, came to rescue him from mankind. Came to rescue from mankind from him, I'm sorry. So Lucifer's our good buddy. He's here to rescue us. From this God of the Bible who's, you know, they call a tyrant. Now the Bible says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet, and light for darkness, and darkness for light. In Isaiah. So this is what they're doing here. This is what Satan always tries to do. He tries to reverse everything. And this dark view of God shows up in many of C. S. Lewis's writings. Here's quoting from another article, titled The Occult. J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and the Occult Overtones in Their Writings. This is from Wes Pinari. He's the guy that writes Illuminati News. This is from 1998. Without a doubt, there are lots of obvious links between Tolkien's imagery world and the occult teachings of different secret societies. You have to read The Lord of the Rings and... Silmarion Silmarillion Silmarillion in particular to know what I'm talking about and this is this West Panery talking my first contact with Tolkien's world was in 1968 when a european radio station presented the hobbit as a summer series it was a well produced with different voices for different characters background sounds and even singing I was totally fascinated. The whole scenario of 3D was playing inside my head. And for me, it was very real. I was stuck in front of the radio every morning, the whole summer though. And when Thorin died at the end, I was crying like as though I had lost a long lost friend. See, these movies, these, these, whether it's an audio depiction, whether it's a movie depiction, or whether it's a book depiction. These writers are so good and demonically inspired at what they do they draw you into the story and you become part of the story essentially you're there and when these characters die these people take these things so seriously that like this guy he broke down in tears crying like a baby i've heard of people that are involved in dungeons and dragons which is which is based on a lot of what we're talking about today this whole middle earth thing that when their characters die they've actually committed suicide In real life. That's how seriously they take this stuff. When they get into this occult fantasy stuff. This isn't reality. This is from the devil. You don't want to immerse your mind in this. The Bible says, as a man thinketh, so is he. If you dwell on this, you're going to become part of this fantasy world. And lose touch with reality. And surely lose touch with God. Then he goes on to say I experienced the same thing two years later when I read The Lord of the Rings the episode where Gondol fell to his death in the depths of Moriah and the enormous relief later when he was reincarnated. Throughout my teens Tolkien was a big part of my life and when he died in 1973 I thought the world must have come to an end. Seemed like he had so much more to give and still the master and still the masterpiece which I've been waiting for the Silmar... Illion was not yet released, which was terrible to him. However, his son, Christopher Tolkien, later put Silmarillion together, and to my big satisfaction, it was released. I know I'm probably butchering that name. I'm sorry. Please give me a little grace. Um... So this 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 was actually released, though, in 1977. Of course, Tolkien was a professor in the English language and a wonderful storyteller, no doubt about that. But there is something more to it. Long before I knew anything about occultism, I had the feeling parts of the story was true in some way. Had Middle Earth existed at some time in the past? Tolkien himself relates Middle Earth to what they call Old England. Some of the following can be speculations, but I think that it is interesting to, to debate it. Um, When we discuss the matter of secret societies in the Illuminati, it is inevitable to make the comparison to Tolkien. Sauron, of course, is Satan Lucifer with his occult power. Now, that's one of his characters in, I guess, The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf is a member of the Brotherhood called the Wizard's Council, which is a secret society in itself with magic rituals and esoteric wisdom. Interesting also that Tolkien created a whole separate world with tunnels and underneath the mountains, many secret societies claim that the earth is hollow, and strange creatures live underneath the surface of the earth. Now, let me say something about that. Now, as hell is in the center of the earth, this has to be certain to a, this has to be true to a certain extent. Well, what do you mean hell's in the center of the earth? Well, let's look at what the Bible says. Okay, because if I can't back it up with the Bible, what good is it? Let's just look at. Uh, Seven different verses here from the Bible. Deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-two It says, For a fire is kindled in mine anger. Now, ask yourself this other question. Do you think that demons, fallen angels, and these types of evil entities, do you think that if, if there was um, what they call a middle earth, I'm not saying the earth is hollow, but do you think that if there were tunnels and underground things and, and things of this nature, and hell, if hell was in the middle of earth, do you think they would know about it? Yeah, I'd probably say they would. Okay, why is it that Tolkien and a lot of these guys write so much about what they call the Middle Earth? Why were they so obsessed with it? Is it because there's absolutely no shred of truth to it at all? You have to ask yourself that question. Let's see what the Bible says. Deuteronomy 32.22 For fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn under the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Okay, so fires kindled in mine anger. This is God talking. And shall burn under the lowest hell. Re- re- implying that hell is low. And shall consume the earth with her increase. Well, if hell wasn't in the earth, how could it consume the earth with her increase? Because it says it consumes the earth with her increase. And then it says hell will set on fire the foundations of the mountains. What does that imply? That hell is deep in the earth. It says it'll set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Well, that's just one verse. Let's go further. Psalm 55, 15 says, Let death seize upon them. This is a psalm, an imprecatory psalm. Let death seize upon them, and let them go down quick into hell. Into hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings, and among them. Isaiah 5.14 says, Therefore, hell hath enlarged itself, and opened her mouth without measure. Hell is described as a physical place that can actually be enlarged, and that can open its mouth without measure. And their glory and their multitude and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. It's also described as a pit. Okay? Hell has enlarged... You know what I think about when I see these volcanoes going off? A lava coming up. I think about hell enlarging itself because if you think about it, lava coming out of the ground, is making space somewhere. Now, I'm not saying that to be dogmatic that is always hell enlarging itself, but I'm I'm thinking to myself, you know, there could absolutely be a connotation there. I mean, let's face it. I mean, if hell, if if think about it this way, if hundreds of thousands of people are plunging into this place in this in the, in the earth every single day, and we know that to be the case because the Bible says. Narrow is the way which leadeth to life eternal, and few there be that find it, and many many there be that go thereat. Well, if it's a physical place, and it's a physical place, it only is finite. Okay? So it would have to enlarge itself if there was enough people to justify enlarging it. Just something to think about, okay? Let's, Let's go first. The Bible says, hell hath enlarged herself. And open her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp, and the, he that rejoices shall descend into it. Why does it say it's enlarging itself? Because these people that were welled up with pride, and it says that there's a multitude of them, with their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. That's why it has to enlarge itself to accommodate more souls. Isaiah 14:9 says, "Hell, from beneath, says from beneath, is moved." for thee to meet thee at thy coming it stirth up the dead for thee even all the chief ones of the earth it has raised up their thrones all the kings of the nations ezekiel 31:16 says i made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall when i cast him down to hell with them that descend into the pit Amos 9.2 Though they dig into hell What does that imply? It implies someplace you could. I'm not saying you go out and dig a little hole and you're going to find hell. But it says though they dig into hell thence shall mine enemy shall mine hand take them though they climb up to heaven thence will I bring them down. Jonah 2.2 2. And I said, I cried by reason of mine infliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I, and thou heardest my voice out of the belly of hell. So anyway, when, they, when these people talk about this Middle Earth stuff, with this fantasy occult literature, realize there's most likely some basis of fact here. I'm not going to say anything more about that right now, but I'm just saying it's, it's, a, it's a point to, to, to ponder. Now, it's interesting from this viewpoint to compare the power struggle of Middle Earth with the power struggle of Earth today. Now, this is the Middle Earth that's portrayed in all this fantasy occult literature. As we know it from a magical point of view, because that's exactly what's going on today, an occult power struggle above ordinary people's heads. We are considered by them the ignorant, sheeple people, and the magicians who essentially would be called the ruling elite, the Illuminati, the globalists, whatever you want to call them. The magicians are the shepherds from the occult standpoint, eager to keep the sheep within their fold so they themselves can stay busy with creating an empire for them to rule over, which essentially is going to be known as the New World Order. Similar to many occult masters, Tolkien got the idea to his masterpiece after he had been wounded in the First World War. Sounds like Hitler because Hitler really took off. That's when he wrote Mein Kampf, after after that. He didn't know from where he got the idea. This is Tolkien. It just came to him. Many occultists have had the same experiences, some strange power just channeling through them. Also, Tolkien was a professor in Oxford, which is controlled by the Illuminati. Hey, so was C.S. Lewis. So was a lot of other people in that ta- same time frame. Question, was Tolkien a part of the brotherhood to some degree? Well, I think after what we've looked at today, there can be no doubt about that. Did he, and I mean the occult brotherhood. Did he know the occult technology, or is everything just a coincidence? He himself said he used parts of Beowulf Saga and the old Icelandic myths to create his own epos. But that doesn't explain everything. Hopefully we'll understand this better as we continue. Well, we've already looked at a lot of this to understand this better. Was Tolkien... This is um, entitled, Was Tolkien an Occult or Christian Writer? Christians are divided into two camps with regard to Tolkien's books. One camp says there are allegorical links between his myth and biblical truth, while the other camp points out the occult links and emphasizes the Lord of the Rings was written to deceive and mislead people and steer them away from God into the occult. Here are some different reference quotes in regard to this subject. Sadly, many professing Christians, via the lie... ...that anything done by a Christian, a quote Christian, is acceptable, have also accepted the occult. Tolkien was defined to be a Christian. Satan then got acceptance for his evil occult series of the Lord of the Rings... ...by gullible people that believe anything done by a Christian is acceptable. Another quote says, Satan has used Tolkien and his occult series in a very successful attacks against both the lost and professing Christians. The devil succeeded in getting the occult books accepted by both groups, and lost. the loss of professing Christians and Tolkien's demonic works played a major role in this process. Tolkien's occult stories were first published in the 1950s. It is interesting to note that Tolkien took 12 years to write his occult stories and released them in the 13th year. Tolkien was a man of many contradictions. He lived from 1892 to 1973. For example, some of these contradictions are, back in 1969, he wrote a letter affirming That, quote, the chief purpose of life for any one of us is to increase according to our capacity, our knowledge of God, by all means that we have, and to be moved by it to praise and thanks. Sounds like a statement from a Christian, right? Yet, the primary focus of Tolkien's life was the mythical Middle-earth. Heated by a distant and impersonal God who would confuse rather than clarify the nature of the biblical God. So he could say these quotes. Uh, see, and these are the only quotes that you see these people that are, that are trying to glorify them. These are the only quotes you'll ever see. So he really was a Christian. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. What about all the other stuff that he was doing that would absolutely negate that quote? A double-minded mind is unstable in all his ways. And this guy was double-minded like they all are. Now, when he says that, you know, the chief purpose of life is to increase our capacity for the knowledge of God by all means that we have. Understand this. To the occultist, God could easily mean Lucifer or Satan. For example, when we have in God we trust on our dollar bill, and then on the, and on the, and on, in the same breath we have the two seals of the Illuminati on the back of the dollar bill where we have the all-knowing eye of Horus or Lucifer on top of the truncated pyramid. And we could do a whole study on that dollar bill, how occult occult it is. It says, Novus Ordem... What does it say? Novus... Okay, sorry. Anut coieptis Novus Ordem Secorum. Okay, it's on the back of the dollar bill. Now, anut coieptis means announcing the birth... Novus Order Sakura means of the New World Order, essentially. Okay, I've done whole emails on this. Announcing the birth of the New World Order around the, the truncated pyramid where we have the All-Knowing Eye of Lucifer on it. We have the pyramid having 13 levels, 13 being the number of rebellion. We have the number 1776 at the base of the ther- pyramid in, in occultic um, Roman letters. Se- 1776 was the year the Illuminati was first formed. May 1st, 1776 was was actually before the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th. Okay, that's what that that's what that's there for. You could go on and on and on about this dollar bill. Now, um, Doc Marquise does probably the best presentation I've ever seen going over this dollar bill. On um, the it's called the Arrival of the Antichrist. It's called by Doc Marquis and you can get it on CuttingEdge.org. It's a um, a DVD or video that you can order, but yet between the two seals of the Illuminati on the back of the of the one dollar bill, we have "In God We Trust." What God are they in reference to? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ who shed His blood on the cross and died for our sins? I don't think so. So that doesn't impress me at all. And all these things going on, on the internet about how oh we can't have them taking "God We Trust" off the coinage. Give me a break. That's not the God they're talking about anyway. But yet so many Christians will go and fight and scratch and claw for something like that. And yet they omit the weightier matters, as Jesus talks about. They strain at gnats and swallow camels. Let's go further about Tolkien's contradictions. In his personal letters, many are included in a book titled The Letters of J.R. Tolkien, he expressed caution toward occult practices, but he equipped his team of mythical heroes in, these, in his own books with pagan powers that God forbids. For example, Gandalf, which is a helpful wizard, is able to wield potent magic to do battle with the forces of darkness. And remember, it's good. It's black and white witchcraft. Gandalf the Grey can be called upon not only can call upon not only his spellcraft like witchcraft spells but also his staff of power and the elven sword like the elfin sword Another thing um, Tolkien once told a Jesuit friend oh that's a good definitely somebody you want to keep company with Jesuits the most wicked demonic faction of the Catholic religion, and he was—he had a Jesuit friend, he said, quote, the Lord of the Rings is of course a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. That's what Tolkien said about what he wrote. The religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. People defending Tolkien say he was a strict Roman Catholic and thus Christian. I'm so sick of hearing about that, I can't tell you. Because Roman Catholics are about as far from Christianity as you could possibly be. And I've done, I've done whole studies on this, just, you know, do a keyword search on my on my uh, teachings and you go over that in, in depth. People say that he was a strict Roman Catholic and thus Christian. Should read more about the Roman Catholicism, especially the Jesuit order. Both these religious groups are nothing but front groups for the Illuminati, that's it the power that is currently controlling political events in the background to create a one-world government and to pave the way for the Antichrist. A challenging question would actually be, was Tolkien actually also a Jesuit in secret? Wouldn't surprise me one bit? Tolkien was a staunch Roman Catholic. He affirmed his faith in the one God who created the universe, but his mythical God stopped creating before the work was finished, and then turned the rest over to a group of lesser gods, or called sub-creators. In other words, Tolkien invented a hierarchy of deities that defied the biblical gods' wise warning concerning both real and and imagined idolatry. Personally, no matter what Tolkien's intentions were, I believe the effect his epos created was an increased interest in the occult, which is the whole point of all of what we're talking about today, to show that to be the case. I could speak from my own experience after I had read his books. And this is just like Harry Potter. That's the whole reason for that, to create interest in the occult. Now, this guy can speak from his own experience, because after he read the books, he wanted to know more about magic and sorcery. And directly or indirectly, his work eventually led me to one of the occult secret societies, where I became a member. Now, I can remember as a kid, where um, going to the good Lutheran school that I went to, we would end um, the lunch period by pro- playing Dungeons and Dragons, okay, which is which inspi- was inspired by Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. I could remember it at the end of lunchtime. If we had any extra time, we play Dungeons and Dragons, and I can remember how caught up I got in that junk. And even though we only prayed it, and, and I, I, I kind of always wanted to pursue it, but God, I believe even in His. His prevenient grace prevented me from going further into that stuff. I can remember another time in high school where there was a group of kids playing Dungeons and Dragons in high school. And I did it for, but I, I was never, something always happened. And it wasn't because I didn't have interest. It was because I believe God intervened, thank God, and kept me out of that stuff. Because I really wanted to pursue that. You know, because I'm telling you, it's, it's like a drug, this stuff. So I can tell, and I never read any C.S. Lewis's. I, can, I, I said this last week, a, um, a girl that I was dating in high school before I was ever saved, her dad gave me, like, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. He says, man, these are the best books in the world. You've got to read them. And I never did read them. So I thank God for that. But this guy said after he did all this, he wanted to know about, more about magic and sorcery. Directly or indirectly, his work eventually led me, meaning Tolkien's work, eventually led him to the occult secret societies where he became a member. However, I finally realized I was being used for their evil purposes and left. Today we have Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, which also has helped to increase the interest in the occult. Brown says he is neutral regarding whether secret societies are benevolent or or, or um, malevolent, but his books present them as a mysterious a, mysterious and Working for Humanity. The same thing goes with Hollywood, and movies like National Treasure, and other similar films. They present a wrong picture of what secret societies are, most likely as a counterattack against the serious research researchers like myself and many others. That's exactly why they're doing this. They're having documentaries now on the Freemasons. Are they really evil? Like on, you know, whatever, Discovery Channel or whatever. And what they're doing is they're presenting all these conspiracy theories first, And then the second hour, they're debunking all of them, saying, no, they're not really evil, there's not really these secret societies, and and this is what this show, um, National Treasure is, with Nicolas Cage, and... I'm not saying go out and rent the movie, but the movie's wicked. And it portrays these Freemasons as these basically these guardians of the secret esoteric knowledge. And they've been working behind the scenes for all these hundreds of years in order to help mankind. And they have all these untold riches that they actually you know got from Solomon. And uh, the, the lie goes on and on and on and on. They're calling evil good and good evil is what they're doing. And Satan's very good at doing that. Uh, this is another quote. Last year, the Da Vinci Code has made Dan Brown enough money to start his own religion. Which, in a way, it does have its own religion, the Da Vinci Code. People will just want to follow whatever. As long as it doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to have to be accountable to a holy God, they want to follow it. Um, has made enough money to start his own religion, as well as inspiring a number of nonfiction titles to seek the truth behind his premise of secret societies. Regarding Da Vinci's art, The Bloodline of Jesus Christ... Cracking, there's another book called Cracking the Da Vinci Code by Simon Cox, and then another one, Cracking Da Vinci's Code by James Garlow. They look for flaws in Brown's conspiracy, but Martin Lund's Da Vinci Code Decoded, The Truth Behind, which was on the New York Times bestseller list, got the farthest up in the charts. All of them seem to have forgotten that Brown's work was a bestseller in the fiction category, but they want to interpret literally. They want to disprove Christ is really the main reason they want to do this. Because if they, want, if they can disprove Christ, again, we don't have to answer to a holy God anymore. You know? Tolkien books have been a great influence on people, and they have paved the road for other forms of occultism. Games like Dungeons and Dragons were heavenly influenced by Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In addition, his books influenced a n- numerous other authors to write similar stories, which boosted an internet interest in the occult and magic. In my upper teens, I started writing fantasy short stories and novels myself, obsessively inspired by Tolkien. This is what this guy did, because he was inspired by Tolkien. How many others can say the same? This was in the early 1970s. But when I tried to get them published, I was met by a very interesting remark from book publishers. Now, in retrospect, this remark makes sense. They often said to me, regarding my occultic short stories, that these are... Too early to publish these kinds of stories, and that I should wait another five to eight years. They expected a new trend in the book market, and that trend was the fantasy genre. Now looking back, I know they were right. Suddenly the bookstores were overloaded with fantasy novels, and they sold like water in the Sahara. And they still do. Now, bo- now boosted by the movie trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Chronicles of Narnia, and much more. Were they psychic? Psychic? Or how else did they know that people would want fantasy novels in five to eight years? There is nothing esoteric about it. Actually, this is a typical phenomenon. The same things happens in the occult music industry. The book and the music industries decide the future trend and start promoting it on a big scale. They know exactly how to get people interested. How to do that which is already... How to do that is already thoroughly researched by them. As with everything else is in big business, politics and banking, the trends are always set in the direction of creating a new world order. See, that's the whole point of all of this stuff. To usher in the new world order of the Antichrist. This is all done to soften us up, to defile humanity, to corrupt humanity, so that we will more readily accept the Antichrist when he comes on the scene. These two media, books and movies, are excellent tools for the Illuminati because their message reaches millions of people at once. Therefore, the fantasy genre is an introduction to the acceptance of the occult, which has to be looked at a broader perspective. As we rapidly are heading towards a global occult superstate, the occult rock group Led Zeppelin also used Tolkien's fantasy world and a few of their songs. The best known are probably Ramble On and The Battle of Evermore. So, Led Zeppelin was obsessed with them, too. Decades ago, when witchcraft and wizardry were hidden from public view, young, middle-earth visionaries like Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, these other guys, they had no real place to test their new suggestions. That has changed through books, local witch covens, the internet, and other available sources. Seekers can easily find tutors and practices that turn wizardry fantasy into practical occult reality. They're trying to create a whole race of witches. And people heavily and highly involved in the occult. And the younger they can get them involved, via Harry Potter, the better. Thank you. The sobering fact makes our world today radically different from the times when Tolkien and his friends shared their stories with each other. See, that was when it was in its infancy. But see, remember, a little leaven, at the whole lot. This was back when it was just a little bit of leaven, and they would share their stories among one another, and yeah, they put out their stories, but now these guys are revered as these godlike figures in, in, in um, Christian circles, particularly C.S. Lewis. We have no discernment. I'm not saying everybody, but for the most part. Interestingly enough, shortly after I had published the first version of this article on the internet in 1998, I got a letter from a visitor who was told by a high-initiated witch that both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were initiated in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And I would have no problem believing that one bit, especially in light of everything that we have read in the the previous teachings, both today and last week. The... uh, The Golden Dawn is closely related to Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society. During a discussion about Tolkien and his work, this male witch commented that The Hobbit and the rest of the Middle-earth series was merely merely an elementary primer for witchcraft. This is a male witch telling them this very matter-of-factly. Remember, neophyte witches are are basically told, you read the the works of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, and that will give you a primer on witchcraft, essentially. This male witch was even a bit irritated at the lack of background about Tolkien among the people who were gathered there. Later he added that C.S. Lewis, he later added C.S. Lewis to the conversation as another well-known literary figure who was initiated into the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. If this is true or not, it's hard to say, but it's interesting and well worth looking into. Alistair Crowley, who lived from 1875 to 1947, Who is again, the self-styled great beast, and S.L. McGregory Mathers, who lived from 1854 to 1918, were friends at first, but became arch-enemies eventually when Crowley left the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and became the head of the Ordo Templar Orientis, otherwise known as the O.T.O., Mathers was the Grand Master of the Order of the Golden Dawn. And what happened is, is you had two big guys with two big gigantic egos coming in to the same occult thing, and Crowley wanted to take it over. He wanted to get into the more of the really, really hardcore stuff. Mathers resisted him, to a certain extent, and they became arch enemies. Mathers never forgave him for bringing some of the secret knowledge out into the open. In other words, this always is what happens, isn't it? Isn't this what happened to Joseph Smith with the Mormons? He was a member of the Freemasons. He took the, the, the secrets of the Freemasons and started his own religion and called it Mormonism. He was killed as a result of that, most likely by the Freemasons. Because he had taken these secrets and started his own religion. Aleister Crowley did the same thing. He took many of the things he... In the Golden Dawn, he started the Order of Templar Orientis... Mathers never forgave him for bringing out the secret knowledge out in the open and the two magicians started a magical battle. See, they can battle through curses and through witchcraft and incantation. But Crowley was at a higher level. Which Crowley won. And Mathers ended up as a broken man and eventually caved in mentally, physically and died. Well, so did Crowley eventually. He, died, he ended up dying a heroin addict. Essentially penniless and just about insane. Insane. If you, ever, if you ever have seen biographies on Crowley, which I don't really advise you even watch, because the man was so vile and disgusting, and, and, you know, there's just almost no way you could watch an appropriate biography of Aleister Crowley. But they did battle from the magical realm, and Crowley won, at least that one. I mean, what a great organization to be associated with. And C.S. Lewis, and Tolkien, and that Williams guy, and Yeats, who are all inklings are integrally related to the Golden Dawn. I don't care what way you slice it. That's the case. And that this is what happens. Now, Crowley went and he's ended up starting the OTO, the Order Order Templar Orientis. I have some experience with the Order Templar Orientis. I wasn't involved in it, but my mom had a friend. Okay? Her, her name's friend. She worked with her at the phone company. Her name was Betty. Betty had a daughter that actually... Now, Betty was... Highly, highly, highly involved in the occult. Um, Betty was morbidly obese, and she didn't have any friends, and my mom was one of her only friends, okay? Because my mom... One thing about my mom is she's she doesn't... Uh, she's a... In regard to a... From a worldly standpoint, she's a very nice, giving person, okay? Well, she befriended Betty. Betty had a daughter. And Betty, I believe probably indoctrinated her daughter into witchcraft. My mom was told by Betty that when Betty dies, there is a black chest in her apartment. And whatever you do, don't open this chest, just get rid of it. Burn. This is what Betty, who is a witch, who I've been in debates with before, and told me that she's just a good pagan, quote, she's a good pagan. This is what she told my mom. I'm not making this stuff up. Um, I've met Betty on many occasions. She's obsessed with Merlin, she has big gigantic cats, and one's named Merlin, and I don't know, another Camelot, she's got these swords on her wall, and she's obsessed with, which she probably read all of this stuff with Tolkien, Charles Williams, I mean, it would seem to me that that would be the most logical thing that got her involved in the occult. Well, Betty had a daughter. Okay, now the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? Well, guess what? Her daughter takes it a step further. Not only does her daughter get involved in witchcraft, she gets involved with the Ordo Templar Orientis. Which is, which is the branch that Aleister Crowley started after he left the Golden Dawn. The Ordo Templar Orientis is bad, 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 bad. We're talking high level witchcraft. I went up on their website, on their official website. And I, and I printed out page after page after page of what their beliefs were. I warned Betty about this. I said, "Listen, you're you got to get your daughter out of there." I said, "This is evil, evil. Here's what they believe." I'm not even going to tell you. I can't even appropriately tell you how they believe you have to get saved. It is it just get put it this way. It has to do with tantric what they call sex yoga. Okay, which is the, a form of yoga, which is probably the most blasphemous. Yoga is is a new age occult thing. Okay, I would absolutely totally stay away from it. It's involved with Hinduism and this type of stuff. But tantric yoga is called sex yoga, and they they drink their own urine, they eat their own feces, stuff like that. Okay. The Order Templar Orientis combines tantric sex yoga with a lot of other high high level magical, occult black magic stuff. It is blasphemous. It is sick. It is terrible, okay? I printed out all these sheets and and gave them to Betty and, you know, it didn't faze her a bit. She was actually on a really good term with the uh, high priest there and everything else. Well, guess what? Her daughter had been involved in this occult, Order Templar Orientis, started by Aleister Crowley. And all of a sudden, one day, her daughter turns up dead. They find her body mutilated in a trunk out in California. And I told my mom, I said, Mom, either either she had stepped out of line within this order of Templar Orientis, or she had been agreed to be sacrificed. Because many times these people make deals with the devil. And basically they believe for a certain amount of time, if the devil lets you have whatever you want, power, fame, whatever, and then there comes a time where you give your... you sacrifice yourself to Satan. Okay? It was one of the two things. But, you know... Again, I tried to contact Betty and, and, and let her know this. And, and you know what? Even, even then, she persisted in believing they were a good organization. The high priest was a wonderful person. They didn't really know what happened. Give me a break. That's Aleister Crowley's legacy. Interestingly enough, former Illuminati and Mind Control slaves have stated... Now this is from former Illuminati, and mind control slaves have stated that Tolkien's epos is used in them in mind control. Some of the mind control slaves seem to be obsessively looking for a ring, like the Lord of the Rings. In fact, the following extract is from the Lord of the Rings, used to control Illuminati victims. And let's read it. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and the darkness to bind them. There is a whole website with research on C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, and there they discuss in depth the theological aspects of his epos. And it's interesting reading, and I advise you to check into it to build your own opinion if you have any more questions about this. The name of the website is Into the Depth of the Chronicles of Narnia. So, that concludes our teaching on C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, the Inklings, and that whole terrible subject. I'm going to go ahead and end us with a word of prayer, and we'll go from there. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. I pray, Lord God, in the name of Jesus Christ, that your truth would go forth, and that, Lord God, that through these teachings and through these studies, darkness would be exposed, that many would become saved and set free, Lord God, from any bondage that they may be, and that you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive, in the name of Jesus Christ, that every evil entity that would try to hinder this prayer or these teachings in any way, shape or form would be bound and rebuked and if it be thy will cast into the abyss in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would prepare the way Lord God for these people to be set free. That thy name would be glorified. That many would be saved. That you forgive us Lord God for any and all sins that we have committed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that our sins would be covered that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight O Lord and that, Lord God, you would bring to our remembrance any sins that we have in our lives, that, Lord God, we may not think of as sin, that you would cleanse us of presumptuous sins and secret faults, that they would not have dominion over us. And we love you, and we ask all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.